Welcome to Amnesty International's comedy podcast series. This year, Amnesty's had exclusive backstage access at two of the biggest events on the comedy calendar, the 2014 Edinburgh Festival Fringe and the Balham Comedy Festival in London. We'll be bringing you a series of interviews with some of the greatest stand-up comedians working today, and along with finding out about the business of laughter, we'll be chatting about life, politics and human rights. This time, we're joined at the Balham Comedy Festival in London by funny man Kevin Day. He'll be giving us an insight into a day in the life of a comedy writer, revealing his views on racism in football and his former life as a teenage racist. Welcome, Kevin Day. Thank you for speaking with Amnesty International at the Balham Comedy Festival. I've just seen your terrific new show, Stand Uppy. Can you tell our listeners what they could expect from it? It's the usual. People who've seen me before, this is my first full-length Edinburgh show for some time. I'm reluctant to call it a comeback, but technically is. I've never stopped doing stand-up, but I haven't done a proper full-length Edinburgh show for some time. But it's the usual mix of... Uh, I, I try and talk about the political through the personal, basically. Um, and in the past, I've talked about my own past. Uh, the first show that people really took notice of was a show I did called I Was a Teenage Racist about when I was very young and I was in the National Front, even though my best friend was black. This show, I didn't set out to write a show about the NHS, but while I was writing the show, my wife was, was really ill and treated by the NHS. So it's, it's part of it's about my experience in the NHS through her, but it's, it's, it's an attempt to make sense of the wider world through personal stories, basically, with some stupid stuff thrown in. And I try and get away with stuff by raising my eyebrows a lot and, and trying to get a gleam in my eyes when I'm saying something distasteful or unpleasant. Um, so you've got a load of strings to your bow. Mm. Um, you're doing stand-up. You're presenting Match of the Day two. But I do pieces on Match of the Day two, yeah. No, and yeah. you, you know, and you've done writing for a whole host of shows like Eight Out of Ten Cats, Never Mind the Buzzcocks. Have I got news for you? Claire Balding said, "If mm. you laugh at any joke on TV, it's probably written by you." Um, do you like the variety of that work? I love it. One of the reasons I'm doing this show is because when people ask me what. I do for a living. I say I'm a comedian. But last year in Edinburgh, Terry Alderton, who's one of my favourite comics, said, you, you really need to stop saying that because at the moment you're not a comedian, you're a writer who occasionally does a bit of comedy. And it kind of hit home. And mm. I, I, I don't want to be a writer or a broadcaster who does comedy. I want to get back to being a comedian first and foremost. And I don't mind if I'm a comedian who writes on other TV shows or I'm a comedian who presents sports shows. That's mm. fine, but I want the comedian bit to come first which is why I wanted to do the Edinburgh show this year and, and also because I do love I love writing things like writing and have I got news for you is, is a it's a brilliant job it's a lovely job but a lot of the stuff you write doesn't get said or if it does get said you're not happy with the way it's said and it can be a frustrating process mm. so I just wanted to, to do something where I was entirely in control of whether or not people laughed at something I wrote it's just been important to me. It's just strange. It's just been important mm. to me. I need to, I need to sort of define myself as a stand-up who does other stuff. If if I thought, and it's it's been quite sad to find out that there are younger people who don't know that I am a stand-up because I, you know through the late 80s and early 90s I was quite well known. I had some very successful shows, and it sort of saddens me that there are people who go, oh, I didn't know that. that's interesting. Mm. So it, I've I've been really chuffed about I'm sort of reclaiming myself as a, a stand-up, which I'm really happy about. Sounds a bit ponty, that, doesn't it? No, it sounds, sounds fantastic. <laughs> but just on, on that writing, could you just tell us a little bit about the writing process for something like Have I Got News For You? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. We've, we've got, uh, we just moved house 
uh, in the middle of a very fraught period of illness. It's a strange thing to do, but we've got, it's a cliche, but we've got these two Polish builders, Lukasz and Derek, who are delightful, hard-working men. <laughs> Both of them are obsessed with British comedy because when they came over five years ago, a friend said to them, comedy is a really good way of learning uh, vernacular English. And they both they both love comedy, and oddly they both love. Have I got news for you? So I'm taking them to a recording from the next series. But one of them asked me what my day was like. Now this was bear in mind that after he'd been working in my house for ten hours solid, and I didn't really want to tell him what my day was like because on the face of it, it's quite an easy day because you arrive at ten o'clock and somebody brings you tea and then somebody brings you lunch. But what happens is uh, on the Tuesday you do the odd ones out and the missing word stuff. Mm. So it's not a day you really want to do because that's the stuff that tends to get dropped first. But so the day you really want to do is the Wednesday or the Thursday, Thursday studio day, which is a day I really enjoy doing. And what happens basically is you, if a story breaks overnight, well, the producers will have the stories they want to talk about. And we only write for the presenter. We never write for the guests. They don't get anything given to them at all. The rest is all ad lib. But basically you get a massive news pack you get a massive research pack and then there's three of you and basically you talk through the stories you come up with stuff and then somebody writes it all down at the yeah. end of an hour you go through this quite brutal period where you sort of write and reject but because we all know each other really well you have to be really honest and we say is that an idea that's worth keeping and if it is we then discuss and most of it is kind of like nobody you never come up with a fully formed joke or sometimes you do, it's really rare. You might go, ah, oh, have you seen this? And then a thought will come. And then at the end of it, you don't know who came up with the original idea, but you, it's a collective process. So mm. it's, it's, it's really exciting, but at the same time, it can be frustrating. If you've got a story that lingers on for ages, like MPs' expenses, for example, when that's coming up every week, it can be hard to find a new angle. But there is a, it's really exciting when you suddenly come up with something and between the three of you, you come up with a line that you think is really good. And you touched on it earlier about a previous show about you being a member of the National Front. Could you just tell us a bit about that and, and what it was that sort of made you think like that? Um, it was in the late 70s when many people thought like that. And the odd thing was that I considered myself a nationalist and a socialist. I thought of myself as being fairly left-wing, and you put those two words together and it's a pretty volatile mix, nationalist and socialist. But I bought into the, as a teenager, I bought into the, what seemed to me simple economics, two million unemployed and two million, as we called them then, Commonwealth immigrants. But also, I grew up loving military history, so I just love odd things like just seeing flags together. Mm. And I was from an Anglo-Irish background, my mum was half Irish, but I went to a school where I might as well have been in Dublin. I was one of only, in my year of 92 kids, I was one of only 10 kids who wasn't, didn't have two Irish parents. And I think part of it was a reaction to that. Um, and the odd thing about it was one of the reasons I wrote the show is that my best friend who I grew up with, who lived next door but one, was three months younger than me, he was black, Richard. But like many people, your black friends didn't count. And they're not going to send Richard back. And Richard came to a couple of meetings with me as he thought they were hilarious. But Richard, two years after that, I mean, it's an odd thing to say, but I mean, a year later, I was in the SWP, because you're kind of all over, because what happened was, I started sixth form, and instead of getting a bus to school, I started getting a train, and there was two lads in sixth form who got on the train, who just, first time I got on the train, just laid into me and said, why are you in the National Front, and we got chatting, and it didn't take a lot to persuade me, because I was never committed, I hated going on marches, I hated going to meetings, but I just, I thought I was a proud patriot, and this was a way mm -hmm. of, showing that, you know, illustrating my proud patriotism around the, you know, um, I, I knew at some stage I would have to, 
I wasn't a comedian for many years after that. But when I became a comedian, when I became a good comedian, I knew that I, I had to confront that part of my life. Mm. For Richard's sake, I knew I had to confront that part of my life and, and deal with it. And uh, I did. It was, it was, I, I'm very proud of the show. I'm very proud of what I said. I had to start. I, I just got, for a while, I became everyone's go-to guy about racism. I just knew, you know, I was, you know questions, news night and five live, every time there was a question. So but it, I, I put it beside, but it's, that kind of established my reputation for, you know, people said it was very honest and it was honest, but I didn't mm. do it. I didn't, say, I, don't, you know, I didn't set out to be the honest comic. I just wanted to honour Rich's memory, basically. Tell your story. Yeah, which I think I did. But, and, but it was only part of this. It was, that was the strand through the stand-up show. And it was really odd because I remember one night vividly. I remember two nights vividly, in fact. There was one night quite early on in Edinburgh. And I did the show at 6 o'clock. I deliberately didn't want to do it late at night. So I thought if I did it 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock with a more volatile, drunken audience, it'd be difficult. So I wanted it to be more theatrical, which I've done with this show. But two or three shows in, there were an African couple in tribal dress watching the show. And about 15 minutes in, the guy stood up and said to the audience, it's fine, stop looking at us before you laugh. We're perfectly yeah. happy with, with, with this. And the second time, I remember the last, I toured it, and the last night of my tour was in Liverpool, and a social worker phoned up and said, can I bring some of my lads to see the show? They're all black and mixed race, and they're really interested in seeing the show, and can we meet afterwards? And I did the show, and it was brilliant, one of the best I've done, packed out in this theatre in Liverpool. I met these kids afterwards, and they just laid into me, rightly so as well. They just challenged everything I'd said, and they just said, "You get, you can't get away with it just by saying you're sorry. Why did you do this? What happened? What happened?" And then, in a way, I wish they'd done that before I did the show because it might have made the show better. Because I was, I was, you know, expecting them as usual to be congratulated, saying, "Well done, you're very honest." But they just rightly laid into me, and we, we ended up having this brilliant discussion about Liverpool's role in the slave trade and how many buildings and streets were named after slave, which that was really, it's a really interesting process. So. Really interesting. On, on to your love of sport, yeah. um, we spoke to Eric Cantona recently and he said that he couldn't understand why FIFA gave the World Cup to Qatar um, and if it wasn't about money that it sh and, um, and that it showed that he really didn't care, that FIFA really didn't care about it's sport. Some, Where do you, you stand? Where do you stand um, on it? Eric Cantona is absolutely right. It's, it's disgraceful that the World Cup went to Russia for a start off. Russia, Russian football has got a terrible, terrible record of racism, football fans in Russia. And it's blatant. It's not undercover. It's blatant. The, the, the banners, the posters, the chanting, mm. it's obscene and simply shouldn't be allowed to go to Russia. The fact it's gone to Qatar, uh, a country of no football tradition and I understand that the World Cup needs to be spread around. Of course it does. The World Cup should go to Asia. I agree. It's been in Japan and South Korea. Qatar has no football tradition. They're building every stadium but one from scratch. Mm. Quite apart from the environmental impact it's going to cause. The fact is it's a country where women aren't allowed into football stadiums at the moment. It's illegal to be homosexual. And for Sepp Blatter to say, as he did, well, just refrain from homosexual activity while you're in Qatar, is just absolutely wrong. If FIFA gave the World Cup to Russia and said, you're having this World Cup to get rid of racism in football, and if you haven't got rid of it, you're not having the World Cup, 
They haven't said that to Qatar. If they've said to Qatar, look, you're getting the World Cup. You're getting the World Cup to bring you into the family of football, and the family of football doesn't agree with the way you treat women, the way you treat homosexual people. When English football fans find out they can't drink over there, they're going to be horrified. It's just shouldn't. It should be as simple as that. It should have been thrown out immediately. Any country, any person, place that wants to get the World Cup, and it's the same in Brazil. Of course, the World Cup should go to Brazil, but FIFA should be using that as an excuse to point out the the, the absolute wrongness of the distribution of wealth in Brazil. They should be saying you should get, but instead, Brazil, the FIFA, it's astonishing for the for the time that FIFA are in any country for the World Cup, they're tax exempt, they're treated as a foreign country in Brazil. It's just ludicrous. And FIFA are missing a trick mm-hmm. by giving the World Cup to Russia and Qatar. The, the Qatar World Cup is just one of the most blatant pieces. And for th- of course it's chicanery, of course it's bribery. No, and I'm happy to say that. I've got a bit in my show that you've just seen where mm-hmm. I say that it's not all right legally to cough over allegations. I will say that without coughing. Of course bribery took place. There's no other, there's no other reason why the World Cup's gone to Qatar, none at all. It's a national disgrace. And do you still think there's a lot of racism in football? <sighs> yes. It's, it's, it's sorting itself. In, in, it's odd that Eric Cantona launched his famous kung fu kick at Crystal Palace when he was called a French so-and-so. And he kung fu kicked a 15-year-old boy. What annoyed me about that is that suddenly Palace became labelled a racist football club. We had six black players. Eric Cantona was sent off for kicking a black player. We had six black players, five of whom were local lads. We've always been a club. We've never been associated with racism. We've always been a club that's tried to reflect our area in our football team. And in an astonishing space of time, I did a piece for Match of the Day 2 with Cyril Regis. Uh, Fantastic. French guy on a black footballer who played for Wolves Villa, West Brom in the uh, Villa West Brom in the seventies. Uh, so many people. His book signing took so long. We were late for the game. His book signing. So many working class white men said to him that they were racist before they saw him play football, because he was mm-hmm. such a committed, wholehearted footballer. They, they thought, well, all those things we say about black people are wrong, because here's a black guy mm-hmm. who's not lazy, who's giving everything for the shirt. And Cyril spoke to all of them, and he was really pleased. And he pointed out, in a, in a sense, football, in quite a short space of time, in only 30 years, football's made amazing strides. It really has amazing, made amazing strides. But yes, it's still racist, because you look at the amount of black players, but the amount of black coaches we have is, is risible. We had mm. two, it only took two black managers to be sacked, for there to be no black managers. And we have to adopt the Rooney rule. The Rooney rule in, in American football has been fantastic, whereby NFL clubs who are seeking new coach, defensive coach, head coach, have to interview black candidates. And it's not tokenism. What it's doing is bringing black candidates in front of an all-white panel of people. Because most football clubs are run entirely by... No, there are quite a few female chief executives, but most football clubs are run entirely by white men. They simply don't know how good black candidates can be because mm. they don't choose them to interview them. If they're forced to interview them, it won't take long before they go, oh, crikey, yeah, he knows what he's talking about. He's a good coach. And, and then, as it should be, black people should be... There should be as many black coaches and managers as there are black players. And the fact that there aren't... Football does want to deal with it. There is a willingness to deal with it, absolutely. And it's still got a way to go, and we still need to try and attract Asian people into the, into the crowd more than anything. But certainly, certainly you get... The sort of racism you would hear 30 years ago in a crowd is now policed by the crowd for the most part. If anybody says anything racist, other fans will tell them to shut up or they will get stewards. So it is getting better, mm. but it's, it's, it's a long way from being solved. It's not solved. It is getting better. But now, Kevin, I'm going to let you get back to your friends, but just one you. last question, which is... Um, you know, Amnesty International obviously defends freedom of expression all over the world. Of course. Do you think that there's 
anything that we shouldn't joke about? Is there anything you wouldn't make jokes about? Things that have happened to me, I will talk about anything that's happened to me, openly and honestly. Talking The stuff I've been talking about in the show about my mm. wife's illness, I wouldn't dream of doing that without talking to her about whether she's comfortable with me doing it. What worries me a little bit about a kind of what we still, what I still like to call alternative comedy, is that for me, for the most part, the victims of the comedy shouldn't be the victims of life, as far as I'm concerned. And that we should be tackling the powerful and the rich and the blasé, not the people. Uh, uh, Johnny Vegas, is, he, he was talking about certain comedians, uh, Ricky Gervais for one. Then Johnny said, my, I want my comedy to be for the people standing at bus stops. I don't want my comedy to be taking the piss out of the people standing at bus stops. And I, I, think, I think in general, as long as you're choosing the right victims, then there, are, there, are, there is nothing you can't say. And if you're, it's a tricky one. It's a, really mm. tri it's a tricky one for mm. Amnesty as well, because like, mm. where does freedom of expression end and where does it stop? But, and I don't think people have got, I hate the fact that people say I'm offended by that, but there are things that comics say that they shouldn't really say. And if you're saying something just for effect, I don't think you should say it. I think Nick Revel's benchmark is a good one. If you, if you wouldn't say it, if the person you're saying about is in the room, then don't say it. Kevin Day, thank you very much. If you're interested in learning more about human rights or joining Amnesty International, then please go to our website, amnesty.org.uk. And make sure you don't miss our next episode. Here's a sneak peek. And do you use a lot of social commentary in your act? I use very little social commentary in my act. I mostly pull faces and do impressions <laughs> of turkeys in ovens. <laughs> I wish I was the former. I wish I had the woman. I, I want to see that, but it won't really translate for the podcast. Yeah, it won't really. Yeah. You'll, you'll have to come and see the show. There's no turkeys in the show. So it's a good little tease, though, yeah. for the, for the uh, listeners.